I, uh, my dad was a pastor, and he went to a church, so we uh, just went there for the first time. And we had the kind of experience you had this morning. Was this music fantastic this morning, you all? Oh, yeah, you can, you can thank God for them using their gifts. And I'll never forget, in that service, uh, the, 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 the singing was happening like it was here, and you could feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I was sitting back in the back, as most teenagers do, and I heard somebody go, Woo! And I got my dad in the car, and I said, Was that man okay? And he said, That man just loves Jesus. So I started doing it. It wasn't as much fun when I did it. <laughs> See, all this morning, um, we're jumping into a short series on what it means to be the church. I want to first point out that there's a difference between being the church and doing church. There's a difference between being the church and doing church. Turn to the person next to you and just say to them, You are the church. And thank you for doing all the stupid things I asked you to do. <laughs> Let me tell you why I asked you to do that. When I was a kid, my dad would often say, we're going to run up to the church, is what he'd say. We're going to run up to the church. Now, I got, when I got old enough to find out what the church really was, I realized there was no way to run up to the church. Because the church is the people. It's what's an ecclesia. It's a gathering. If this church burned down next Saturday night, guess what? We'd still have church somewhere. Because the church would gather. Many churches find themselves doing church well, but not being church very well. What I mean by that is they are an efficient organization. They have good budgets and good buildings. So they're an efficient organization. They're doing church very well. But they're not being the church very well. You see... Church is more about being relational than it is to being material or being informational. It's about the relationships that we have with one another and how we function in relationship with the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit as we function in community together. It's about what it means to be the church. We're going to be looking at a passage over these next five weeks or five points within a passage that tells us what it means to be the church. I'm going to share that with you in just a minute. If you've got your Bibles, uh, if you'll turn to Acts 2.42. Acts 2.42, that's our starting point. Acts 2.42. Let me see if I can give you a little setup here, a little context for this. So as you may recall, Jesus often stated that when he was no longer with his disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit. Jesus, crucified, ascends to heaven, and he tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. And people have the indwelling Holy Spirit in them. By the way, I want to remind you that as the body of Christ, if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter, who to me, prior to receiving the Holy Spirit, was kind of an angry doofus. Have you ever thought that about Peter when you hear about him? You, you look at him prior to receiving the Holy Spirit, there's a whole different man after he receives the Holy Spirit. He preaches and 3,000 people come to Christ and the New Testament church just birthed. And there's a movement of God like we've never seen since. You ask the question, does the Bible tell us what we need to do in order to see the movement of God in that way? And it does. It's found in this reading, Acts 2, 42 through 47. There are five things we're going to be talking about over the next five weeks. And here's what it says. They devoted themselves to first capture that fact they devoted themselves to. Let me tell you what it means to devote yourself as it reads in that particular passage. Here's what it means. Devotion, 
according to the term that is used there, there's a long list. It's to persist obstinately in a task. It's to keep on with devotion. It's to continue to do something with intense effort. It's be steadfastly attentive to, to give unremitting care to a thing, to continue all the time in, to persevere and not to faint, to be constantly diligent, to attend all the exercises with great care, to adhere closely to and to attend to continually. When these people were devoting themselves to these things, it wasn't like I do this when I come to church on Sunday or when I'm with my Sunday school class in my small group. Their lives were built around the things we're going to be discussing over these next five weeks. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Now you may be asking yourself the question, when the church is being the church, is there a particular outcome? And there is. It's the next sentence. And it's what we all dream of. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. When the church is being the church, if her priorities on all of us would be to do the five things we're talking about, people will come to know Jesus Christ because when they experience that kind of love, that kind of care for one another, that kind of journey that is so supernatural because of the Holy Spirit working in and through you as you engage in the five things we're going to be looking at, they want a piece of that action. And they'll come be with us and they'll hear the gospel and have the chance to respond. Listen, the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. So we are the bride of Christ. We should be willing to do whatever it takes for that bride to be healthy, shouldn't we? There's an old story of a, of a man and woman. The guy was very sick and his wife took him to the doctor. And when they got to the doctor, the doctor took the guy back for his examination. He had his examination and then, uh, and then the doctor took him back to the waiting room and asked to see the wife. So she goes back into the uh, room and talks to the doctor and the doctor said, hey, here's the deal. Your husband's very, very sick, but he, he will survive if you meet every need he has and put no pressure on him to do anything. So he'll survive if you'll have a hot breakfast for him every morning. He'll survive if every one of his physical needs you're willing to meet no matter what. He'll survive if every night there's a full meal on the table. And he'll survive only if, only if, only if you'll make sure he's never asked to do a chore around the house or take care of anything. When she came back out to the waiting room, the husband asked her, what did the doctor say? She said, you're going to die. <laughs> Some wife said Amen. Is Julie in the room right now? That's my wife. So what I want you to sort of say to you is this. Many churches today are dying. Because as the bride of Christ, they're unwilling to take on those things that may cause them a little discomfort or a little time. They're struggling not because they're not great people or they're not great churches, Rather, because there are expectations that Scripture points out that we go, well, I don't think it's that important. I've never had anybody say that to me before. Why are they bringing that up now? Let me tell you why I bring it up to you as Eastwood Baptist Church. I see a great church in front of me. 
This is a great church. Every church can be a little greater, don't you think? And when the Bible points out the things that we need to be about as the body of Christ, we don't say, perhaps that's a good idea. As best we can, we say, yes, I will. Out of what? Out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. This morning, we're going to climb into the apostles' teaching. That is to give the Bible uh, priority in your life, to spend time in God's Word. To get to know it, really, the first thing it says is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I'm going to give you four quick points. I hope you'll consider writing them down. Some thoughts that might be helpful to you. Why is the Bible so important? First of all, because it's God's words. The Bible is God's words. 2 Peter 1, 20-21 says this, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. What does that mean? Not one word in the Bible did a man write down that we were given that God didn't inspire. The Bible is inerrant and infallible. How can I be certain that's true? Because it comes from God. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, only by the will of God. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What does it mean they were carried along by the Holy Spirit? The Greek term has an insinuation that it's a sail on a sailboat and it will be carried along by the wind of the Holy Spirit. There will be no movement until the Holy Spirit moves the person that is writing. God is unable to tell a lie, so we know that it has to be true. Why would we not want to know God? better. I have uh, struggled in my whole life to have consistent time with God. I do well some seasons, some seasons I don't. I do better some days than I do other days, knowing that I need to be in God's Word. Now, if you're a Sunday school teacher or a preacher, I would suggest you differentiate between studying to teach and preach and getting in God's Word for your own heart. Very good differentiation there because when you're studying for your own heart you're getting to know God not wondering what's best for the people you're teaching so who is this God there was a little boy who was uh, he was doodling as the pastor walked by and the pastor as he walked by just stopped and tried to be nice pat the little boy in the head and the kid was about 10 or 11 years old and he said uh, what are you drawing and the kid said I'm drawing God now the pastor's a theologue so he realized as a theologian I need to point this out to this boy that you can't describe God because you've never seen God. So he said to the little boy, he said, well, nobody knows what God looks like. And the little boy said, oh, you will when I'm finished. <laughs> you know, I'm afraid that some of us have a God in our head that isn't God at all. Because we're not spending time in God's word much, we've created a much smaller God than truly exists. We've created a God that doesn't do much. We've created a God that's way out there somewhere. We've created a God that isn't about us much. The little boy was drawn God, but it would have been a very small God because of his knowledge of God. I um, want to remind us that God existed before time began as Father, Son, Holy Spirit in perfect community. Then he created Simply by speaking, things came into being. Then he made man. 
man, Adam and Eve, they sinned in the garden. And what did this God do? He made the first sacrifice, blood sacrifice, by killing an animal and placing skins on them so that they would not be embarrassed by their nakedness that was revealed to them because of their sin. He loved them that much and he loves you that much. Then he made a people for himself, the children of Israel. Then he sent his own son to die on a cross for you. Then that son resurrected from the dead, bringing resurrection power in your life that reminds you that someday you will be resurrected and be in heaven forever. And someday Jesus is going to come on a white horse and we're all going to see him at one time. And we're going to be taken to heaven with him. That's a pretty good God, don't you think? Don't you want to know that God better? The Bible is God's autobiography. You've heard me talk about my wife. Um, I've been in love with her from the first day I saw her. You know if when I met her, there was an autobiography that she had written about herself, no other book in my life would have been picked up for a long, long time. I'd been wanting to know what that girl liked, what she loved, what she'd done in her past, what she could do in her future, what her dreams were, what her expectations were with a family, because I loved her so much. Don't we love God that much? The Bible is God's autobiography, and we have it right in our hands. Secondly, the Bible reveals what the truth is. Would you circle the word the on your outline, what the truth is? I want to focus on that specifically. Since the Bible is God's words, and as I just mentioned a moment ago, because God is morally perfect, He cannot lie, every word in the Bible is truth. I uh, don't agree with Dr. Phil on everything. I kind of like to watch his show once in a while. I like his counseling style. Change, that's his counseling style. But he does one thing I really appreciate. When two people are trying to tell different versions of the truth, he'll tell them the truth doesn't have two versions. One of you's got to be lying if you're telling two different versions of what happened or what is. You know, that's the truth about the Bible. Some people will question. They'll have their own truth is what they'll say. I've got my truth, you've got your truth. But there can't be two things focusing on the same topic that are different and somebody not be misunderstanding or lying. So if I were to be standing out on the front porch of the church right here, and as you know, there's a lane that goes one, one block that goes right out to the main road, and there were two people down on the other end, and they were trying to get to the church, and they were discussing what's the fastest route to get to Eastwood Baptist Church. Well, obviously, the fastest route is one straight line that walks right into our front door. And one person says, that's the fastest route there. The other person, no, 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 that's not the fastest route. We need to go with that, turn left, and then go right and come back around and go another block, and that's the fastest route. Guess what? Somebody's wrong. They can't both be right. And in our world today, a lot of people are saying, I've got my truth and you've got your truth. And we get confused. There were three baseball umpires and they were debating their different styles of umpiring. The first umpire said there's balls and there's strikes and I call them the way they are. The second umpire said, oh, that's arrogant. There's balls and there's strikes and I call them the way I see them. The third umpire, he said, that's no better. Why beat around the bush? Why not be, be, be realistic about what we do? There's balls and there's strikes, and we decide if they're balls and strikes. The first umpire represents the traditional view of truth. And by the way, traditional is not a bad word because in this instance, it is the fact. It's objective. 
independent of the mind and the knower. They're there to be discovered as it is. What did he say? We call balls and strikes as they are. The second umpire represents modern relativism. Truth as each person sees it. People say, I don't see that as true. You see it as true, but I see that as false. In essence, everybody has their own truth. And the third umpire represents the radical relativist postmodern position. Truth is not to be discovered. It's for each of us to create for ourselves. According to the relativist position, there is no such thing as objective truth. What's true for you isn't true for me. I get to have my truth and you get to have your truth as if there is no truth at all. And in the final analysis, truth corresponds with the first umpire's position to that which actually is. Aren't you glad that God gave us a book full of real truth so that we're not trying to figure out the right way to God? Some will say there are inconsistencies in Scripture. They choose their own truth because there are many things in the Bible that can't be proven scientifically. For instance, it's scientifically impossible for the Red Sea to part. It's scientifically impossible for a man to walk on water. It's scientifically impossible for a man to be raised from the dead. Listen, this doesn't prove the Bible isn't true. It proves that God is God. Thirdly, the Bible unearthed the route to heaven. I love this. The Bible unearthed the truth to heaven. 2 Timothy 3, Timothy 3, 14 and 15 says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul's telling young Timothy to hold to the sacred writings that guide us to the knowledge of how to become a Christian. Someone once wisely stated that from Genesis 3, the fall, where we sinned and sin entered the world and at that point needed a Savior, to the last word in Revelation, God is after one thing. He's telling us how we can be reconnected with Him for all of eternity. Isn't that a beautiful gift to us? The route to God is a one-way street, folks. Be very careful. In the world today, people say there are lots of ways to God. But if God cannot lie, and he cannot, and his Bible says that Jesus stated, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. You can be certain that that's a fact. There's one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. Some would say, what separates Christians from others? From other major belief systems, what's different? I want to point that out to you. I'm going to look at three major belief systems for just a moment. First off, there's Hinduism. Hinduism lets a person choose how to work towards spiritual perfection. I want you to capture the word, how to work towards spiritual perfection. There are three possible ways to end the cycle of karma. One, be lovingly devoted to any of the Hindu deities. Two, grow in knowledge through meditation. To realize that circumstances in life are not real, that selfhood is an illusion and only Brahman is real. And thirdly, be dedicated to various religious ceremonies and rites. That's Hinduism. How about Buddhism? Buddhists follow a list of religious principles and adhere to personal restraint, fasting, and very dedicated meditation. When a Buddhist meditates, it's not the same as praying or focusing on a god. 
It's more a self-discipline. Through practiced meditation, a person may reach nirvana. Don't forget I said may reach nirvana. That is the blowing out of the flame of desire. Wouldn't you hate to have a life where there was no desire? Aren't you glad that we have the great longing and desire to know God better, that that's what he made us for? And then there's Islam. To be a Muslim, one must follow five religious duties. First, repeat a creed about Allah and Muhammad. Secondly, recite certain prayers in Arabic five times a day. Thirdly, give to the needy. Fourthly, one month each year fast from food, drink, sex, and smoking from sunrise to sunset. And then finally, a pilgrimage to worship at the shrine of Mecca is important. And then at death, at death, based on one's faithfulness to these duties, a Muslim hopes to enter paradise. So what sets Christianity apart? All of these religions state that reaching the ultimate destination is based on works. You have to be good enough to make the cut. You have to grind it out to get there. You have to work hard in order to be transferred. Not only that, you really never know if you've been good enough or done enough. And this is where Christianity differs, and it proves that Christianity is a reality and others are not, because the great difference is what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The big difference is that you don't have the power, you're not the person who can, nor will you ever be able to do what is necessary to be with God someday. Jesus did it for you. Let me break this passage down a little bit. First, it's grace. It's a free gift from God. It's grace. This passage says you have been saved. There's no doubt about it. If you accept the grace that's offered you, you were set for heaven. And it's through faith. If you believe Jesus died on the cross and he raised from the dead, you can be saved. And it is a gift from God. It's offered to you by a loving Heavenly Father. And it's not a result of works. The work has already been done by Jesus on the cross. Aren't you glad that God didn't keep us confused about the way to heaven? He gave it to us vividly. It's the greatest truth of all. Now I want to talk to you a little bit about being the church. I'm going to actually be talking to you about that thing that makes people want to go to sleep and put their outlines away. In just a moment, I'm going to talk to you about some disciplines that will aid you in becoming more like Christ. Please don't lose me as I journey down this path. Because what I want to say to you is this, your life can be much more than you anticipated today if you work toward being spiritually mature, not just being a spiritual babe. Now, I know I'm talking to a large audience, so I realize there are some spiritually mature people in this room, probably a lot of them. But for those of you that realize after my conversation with you this morning that, yeah, I've got a ways to go, you may want to take me up on what's requested of you in Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is God-breathed, is, is breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, 
equipped for every good work. Would you circle the word complete, or if it's not your outline, write down the word complete? To become complete means that we become spiritually mature followers of Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. It means that we become spiritually mature followers of Jesus Christ. When you became a believer, the Holy Spirit indwelt your heart. The Holy Spirit is, wants to be at work in you through some of the practices that I'm going to suggest to you to make you spiritually mature. There are five levels of spiritual maturity. There's the person who is dead in Christ. They're not yet a Christian. They're dead in their transgressions and sins is what Scripture says. Then there's the spiritual infant. They're a baby in Christ. They're brand new in Christ, and they need to do what it takes to grow. They're going to be fed milk as they journey. Then there's a spiritual child. They're growing in Christ, but they're still childish in their journey with Christ. Then there's the spiritual young adult. They're mature in Christ. And then there's a spiritual parent. Once they become mature, they're naturally longing to disciple others to maturity. You may be asking yourself the question, how will I know what category I fall in. Now, we could do an assessment, and you could probably find out, but let me just give you a very simplistic form to understand where you fall between are you a spiritual child still or infant, or are you a spiritual young adult or beyond? Now, let me say this to you. In my experience, I believe there are two types of church members. There's the church member who says the role and responsibility of the church is to make me and my family happy. So have the programs we want, the experiences we enjoy. Don't change anything uh, because it really would mess with us because we really like what's going on. Um, in essence, this thing is done for me. I come to church because you do for me. The second kind of church member says, my role and responsibility is to do whatever it takes to bless others and move the kingdom forward. The big difference here is this. One has the arrow pointing at themselves. It's about me. The other has the arrow pointing outward and says it's about thee or others. So you will know if you're a spiritual child if you still focus on the me's as you're journeying the church. You know if you're fairly spiritually mature if you focus on the these. What's best for the kingdom? What's best for others? How do I relate to others best? That's the best deference here that I can give you. Now why is it important to be spiritually mature? Let me tell you what people who are spiritually mature exhibit at high levels. These are the characteristics that spiritually mature ex people exhibit at very high levels. And let me ask you, as I'm saying these, how would this change your marriage? How would it change your parenting? How would it change your grandparenting? How would it change your friendships? Listen closely. High levels of the following. Love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Let me do that one more time. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. If you're glad you're married to a person like that, say amen. I'm glad you said it. I hope you are. I used to, I do a lot of work with college students, training college students, and often I talk to them about spiritual maturity, and um, I used to say to them, be sure, be sure you marry a Christian. I don't anymore. I say, be sure you marry a mature Christian. 
because you want to marry somebody who exhibits love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Please hear me in this room right now. If your marriage is struggling because you're not a person like that, you can be. If you struggle as a parent to show self-control, you can show self-control. And please hear this. If you grow in Christ, this is not something, a behavior that you do. It's an intuitive action that takes place in you because you're like Jesus. You're more and more like Jesus. The goal of spiritual transformation is not behavior modification. It's heart transformation. The goal of spiritual maturity is not behavior modification, it's heart transformation. And when your heart is transformed into the heart of Jesus Christ, you will intuitively and naturally exhibit the characteristics I just mentioned to you. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Now God gave us his word so that we could do that. We've got to feed the right nature. When you became a Christian, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that you became a new creature in Jesus Christ. And that you became a whole new being is what the passage means. Some of y'all are saying, but I still struggle to be the person that I once was, the old person. That's because the old nature doesn't leave us, it still exists. We have the new nature in us when we're in Christ, but the old nature still exists. The one you feed is the one that will thrive. So which nature are you feeding? There's an old poem that uh, a lot of old theologues used to quote, and it goes like this. Two natures beat within my breast. One is foul, the one is blessed. The one I love, the one I hate. The one I feed will dominate. We've got to feed our hearts with the Word of God. I want to give you five actions and activities that you can do that will grow you toward maturity. Utilizing the Word of God. You've got your outline there. You might want to take it out. There should be a hand on your page. And I'll walk you through these very quickly and help you realize these are five practices of growing disciples as it relates to the Word of God. The first is, hear the Word of God. Just what you're doing today, I'm so proud that you're here today. You've come to hear the Word of God preached. I pray that God is working within you because of it. His Word never goes out void. So you're hearing the Word of God preached. If you're not in a Sunday school class, you need to be. To hear the Word of God taught, conversed through it, you need to hear it. But you need to read it daily, too. You need to read God's Word daily. A study was done not too long ago by a Bible organization, and they came to this conclusion if you don't read the Bible at least four times a day, there will be no trans- uh, four times a week, there will be no transformation in your life. God longed for us to be in His Word on a daily basis. He wants us to be in His Word on a daily basis. So hear it, read it, but also study it. Study it. So as you're reading it, something doesn't make sense or you want further th- understanding of it, You need to go study it, not just read it. Now, what am I meaning by this? How can I simplistically do this? If you don't have a good study Bible, I'd suggest you purchase one. A study Bible will have at the top of the page the Scripture passages, and at the bottom of the page it will have commentary, that is, to give you understanding, especially on hard-to-understand passages. That's the most simple way for you to study the Bible, is to have a good study Bible. I'd suggest a couple to you. I like the ESV study Bible. English Standard Version Study Bible. There's also the CSV, the Christian Standard Version. They have a good study Bible. Both of those are very good study Bibles. That's one way. You can also go online. Uh, there's a great website called Bible Hub. You can find scripture passages there. You can click on commentary for passages. That's, those are two really good ways. So I would suggest that you get the right tools that you need in order to study God's Word. By the way, Bible Hub is free, so you don't have to purchase it. So, we need to hear it. We need to read it. We need to study it. 
Now we get to a point where it really demands we think a little differently. Probably nobody's ever said this to you. We need to memorize it. I'm not suggesting you start with memorizing the book of Romans. That is not my suggestion. I'd suggest that you memorize one verse a week. We find in the Psalms um, it's, that it's important to memorize God's word. I will hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against God. I will hide it in my heart, not just read it and keep it in my head. So we read it, so we, we memorize it so, so that we can meditate on it. That's the next step. We memorize it so that we can meditate on it. Some of y'all are thinking, I really have trouble memorizing. If you wonder if Rick Howerton has um, any kind of a intellectual deficit, he has many by the way. But probably the worst is my memory. I actually, uh, I'm not exaggerating as I say this, I can spend four days, every free minute I've got, reading a book and wake up on day five and look at my wife and say, I can't even remember what the title of that book, what it was about, or who wrote it. I am literally that bad. Memorizing scripture is a discipline that I do because I know that it's a calling and expectation of God. And so I memorize Scripture every week, sometimes long passages, sometimes short passages, but I'm memorizing Scripture each week. I do that so that I can meditate on them. My heart will not be transformed unless I take God's Word from my head to my heart, and it goes from your head to your heart by meditating. Now let me see if I can describe what it means to meditate on a passage of Scripture. It literally means in Scripture to chew the cud like a cow will chew on the cud over and over and over again. So you're hashing it out in your mind over and over and over again. So I'm going to illustrate for you how I'm, what I do when I've memorized a passage of Scripture. Um, but the passage we quoted a few minutes ago is 2 Timothy. Um, all, I'm going to give you a different version because I memorized it some years ago. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. How do I meditate on that passage? I take one word at a time and I chew on it. I'm going to illustrate for you. So if I were meditating on that passage, I would start with all, all. How much is that? Every bit. Is that really everything? It's everything. It's all. Is there anything it isn't? There's nothing it isn't. It's all. All what? All Scripture. All Scripture. All Scripture. That's God's words. Those are words that God gave us. Men wrote them down as they were motivated by the Holy Spirit, but they gave it to us. It's infallible. It's inerrant. All Scripture. So every word in the Bible, every bit of it, all Scripture is God-breathed. That means it came from God. No man wrote down his thoughts, his, his, what he wanted to be in the Bible. That It came from God. So God, the Creator. Who is God? God, the Creator. God spoke everything into existence. He also spoke to them and gave them the Word. You see where I'm coming from here? One word at a time. And I've noted that once that Word gets in my head and then into my heart, here's what the Holy Spirit does with it. As though they are, um, they are clothes in a closet... When I have them memorized and meditated on, when I need them, the Holy Spirit says, why don't you reach out and take that one right now? Reach out and take that one. So if I were counseling you and you were saying to me, Rick, I just consistently feel guilt over sins in my life. I, I can't get over it. I'd probably, the Holy Spirit might say, pull that one out. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in Him 
in him, not in you. I could pull that out of the closet in order to give you counsel. That you are forgiven because Jesus did the job for you. Isn't that a great thing to know? We need to be able to go to our closet on behalf of one another and pull out a passage. And that happens as we read, hear, study, memorize, and meditate on God's Word. There's a great... um, there's a great video on YouTube. You might want to give it a run. We thought we had it here. We kind of goofed there, so I apologize. But it's a video of a group of Chinese people getting their first Bibles. You know, they can't have Bibles there. I watched it, I don't know, more times than I should have, I'm sure. I've never watched it when I didn't get a lump in my throat and sometimes just weep out loud because of my own lack of longing for the Word of God. When these people receive these Bibles, they're, they're in a couple of boxes there, and there's a room full of people, and they're running over, them and they're, over to them, and they're grabbing them, and they're, as though this were the Bible, and they're kissing them, and they're weeping, and they're saying to one another, we finally have Bibles. And then the caption at the bottom tells us what one person said to everyone in the room very loudly, We finally have what we need. Well, brothers and sisters, we finally have what we need. We ought to love it so desperately that no one could ever pull it from our hands. We ought to love it so desperately that we get it in our hearts every day. We ought to love it so desperately that it transforms who we are so that our families are what God longed for them to be. We ought to dive into it every chance we get because it is precious. Psalm 119 said it is more precious than gold, sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By it is your servant worn, and keeping those expectations, we can live with Christ the way we were supposed to live. My brothers and sisters, the word of God needs to be placed in our hearts. I'm going to ask you something right now. I want you to think about it. In the last service, I asked this question with uh, great fear and trembling and was blindsided positively. I'm going to ask you to, I'm going to give, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you to take a second and think it through before you consider raising your hand. If you're willing to say this morning that so that I can be the church member I need to be, the husband and wife I need to be, the person I need to be, the believer I need to be at work, I will commit to doing the best I can to getting into the Word of God on a daily basis. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm going to give you a second to think about it. Don't raise your hand unless you mean it. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. So think about it right now. Just a second. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to, on the count of three to raise your hand if you're willing to make that kind of commitment. Oh, by the way, if you're thinking you don't have time, which is what most people say, I'll tell you a little story about a small group member I had. I was discipling a small group member And they kept telling me they didn't have enough time. But I noticed in other conversations with them, uh, for instance, they didn't want to attend a group meeting one night because it um, it was the finale of The Voice. So they couldn't make that meeting. Then another conversation with a guy, he told me, well, you know, I have a pretty busy life because I practice golf an hour a day. I love to golf and that's very important to me. And so at one point I just said to him, now let me see if I got this right. You never miss The Voice and you practice golf an hour a day but you, you don't have time for God's word. 
I loved his response. It was so authentic and so real and so honest. He just said, you know, I never thought about it like that. I probably need to give something up, don't I, so that I can make time for God's word. I said, that's your call. But yeah, I think you looking at priorities, it might be a better option. He called me the next day and he said, Rick, I'm in. What do I need to do? Well, I'm just telling you what you need to do. On the count of three, who would say, I'll commit to that? One, two, three. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I want to pray for you right now. Father, I thank you for these folks and their decision this morning. I know that this will be a much greater church because of this, and these will be much better people because of this, but Lord, let us be your people. Let it be that as we get to know you in very intimate ways that we talk about you more, that we look a lot more like you in the way that we relate to others, that we show great care and concern for the world around us as you did. I thank you, Lord, that maybe even three months from now we'll all look over our shoulder and go, wow, I feel a lot different about myself and other people than I did just three months ago. And we'll know that that's due to the power of your holy word. Let us know it, learn it, memorize it, and live it in your name. Amen and amen.